Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello, and thank you for joining me on the Mummy Movie Podcast. I certainly hope everyone's doing okay. In this episode, we will be looking at The Mummy Returns again from 2001, more specifically at the second half. Therefore, if you haven't listened to my episode on the first half, it's probably recommended that you do that before you listen to this one. But, you know, if you don't want to, that's fine, I guess. So, in terms of the layout for the episode, I'll start with a little background information on the film, then a section on the historical accuracy of the second half of the film, and... Finally, I shall review the second half of the film, and then rate the film over all out of ten as well. Right. You are one of three thieves contracted to find the golden bracelet of Anubis. When you finally bring the amulet to your client, you try to haggle for more money. They are angry, but ultimately agree. However, little do you know that your fate is now sealed. You shall die at the hands of a resurrected ancient evil when the mummy returns. Okay, so... In this section, I'm just going to go over some of the background facts and things for the film. Um, much like I did for the, the first episode, but with the second half of the film. To begin with, Rachel Weitz, who plays Evie, and Patricia Velasquez, who plays Anaxana Moon, trained for five months for their fight scene, and impressively performed most of the stunts themselves. On top of that, Oded Fair, who returns as the Medjai Ardeth Bay, trained in horseback riding for months in preparation. So it's fair to say that the actors in this film did give it their all. When it comes to the CGI used, there are many who, to be honestly, quite rightly criticised the terrible look of the Scorpion King when he resurrects as a half-man, half-giant scorpion. Apparently, the digital effects team were not given much time to complete his look, and had only completed it about eight days before the film's release. I mean, that might explain why it looks so terrible, I guess. In terms of the cast members for the film, outside of Brendan Fraser, Rachel Weitz, and Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Adewale Akinuai Agbaje plays the villainous Loknar, Arnold Voslo returns as Imhotep the Mummy, Sean Parks plays Izzy, the dirigible pilot, and Alan Armstrong plays Mr. Havez, 
the curator of the British Museum and servant of Imhotep. Right, so in this next section, I'm just going to talk about the historical accuracy of the second half. To begin with, when Alex puts on the bracelet of Anubis, it locks onto his wrist and shows him the way to the lost oasis of Amshur, which, as far as I'm aware, is a completely fictional location made up for the film. The bracelet is supposed to come from the time of King Scorpion II, and yet all of the locations it shows were constructed many years after King Scorpion's death. I will admit, this is a bit of a pedantic argument on my side, as we are essentially talking about a magical bracelet of which we don't know the rules. And in fairness, the locations shown do at least move in the correct order southwards. The first location we see is Karnak, an ancient temple complex which is in Luxor today. When they arrive at Karnak, however, it looks nothing like its real-life counterpart. And in all honesty, for me, this was probably the biggest immersion breaker in the entire film, because it was quite clearly not filmed in Egypt. I mean, in fairness, they have tried to replicate some parts of Karnak. So, for instance, they have parts of the Avenue of Ram-Headed Sphinxes, which in Luxor today stretches from Karnak to Luxor Temple. So, this avenue is about 2.7 kilometres in length. Another part of the temple looks like it's trying to replicate the hyperstyle hallway from the precinct of the god Amon Ra. But it just doesn't look right. It's possible that they were trying to make it a little less constructed, as, well, the film is set in 1933 after all. But even taking that into account, the layout of Karnak is all wrong. They have an obelisk and several large statues at the first pylon of the temple, which today serves as the main entrance. These statues are not there in real life, however. Also, the entrance to Karnak seems to immediately lead into the hyperstyle hall mentioned earlier, where in reality the Great Forecourt is located between these. Now, I'm aware that this may all sound very picky on my side, Karnak is one of the most impressive sites in Egypt, and changing anything about it at best is pointless. It is breathtaking enough as it is. Also, all of the elements they needed to tell this part of the story are already present in Karnak. So, for instance, there's one part where Imhotep uses some water as a kind of, like, mirror to the past. In this film, he uses what looks like a tiny little fountain type thing to show the past, when at Karnak, in the precinct of Mut, you have a sacred lake, which is far more impressive than what is shown in the film. It's not often I see films try and exaggerate things and actually make them look worse, but they definitely have in this part of the film. The second location that the bracelet shows is the Temple of Philae near Aswan. Due to the building of the Aswan Low Dam, which started its construction in 1898, Thelai Temple would have mostly been underwater in 1933, and so the shot they have here is not accurate. Interestingly, because of the building of the Aswan Low Dam, the entire temple complex was moved between 1977 and 1980 to Ajiliki Island in order to preserve it. 
So if you're going to visit Thelai Temple today, you're actually not visiting it in its original location. Next on this journey, we see Abu Simbel. And to be honest, although the way they show Abu Simbel is not accurate for 1933, I do think it looks quite cool as they show a large sandbank covering the north side. When the temple was rediscovered in 1813, it was covered by sand. This is not uncommon in Egypt, and in fact, most tombs and temples when rediscovered have to be cleared of sand. Here, the film is trying to replicate the temple when it had only been partially cleared. However, by the 1930s, the temple had been completely cleared, and so, although it's interesting that they have decided to show the temple in this way, it is not strictly accurate. After passing Abu Simbel, a little time goes by and then Rick says that they are travelling down the Blue Nile and that they are now completely out of Egypt. Evie then claims that in ancient times, all of the land they see belongs to Egypt still. First things first, the Blue Nile is a real section of the river. It is essentially an offshoot of the river in Sudan, which leads to Lake Tanna in Ethiopia. On the other hand, Evie's claim that this area once belonged to Egypt is untrue. The furthest point that the ancient Egyptians claimed was the rock formation at Kyrgyz. This is over 450 kilometres north of the Blue Nile. And so it's fair to say that not only is Evie wrong here, she's completely wrong in pretty much every way. Whilst they are travelling, Art of Bay claims that Evie, Alex and Rick were destined for this journey. Evie was the protector of the amulet in her former life. Rick is a Magi destined to protect her. And Alex, their son, is the way to Amshur. He then says that they are three sides of the pyramid. In Egypt, there are about as many three-sided pyramids as there are penguins on the moon. Pyramids have four sides, not three. When they arrive at Amshur, Jonathan finds several shrunken heads. So the Blue Nile stretches from the Sudan into Ethiopia. Firstly, not only are shrunken heads most certainly not Egyptian in origin, they are also not Sudanese in origins or Ethiopian. Instead, they come from South America. So this is about as accurate as saying Ramesses the Great invented Tetris in 1422. Going back slightly in the film, we see a fight scene in ancient Egypt between Evie's former self, Nefertiti, because of course she's called that, and Anax and Amun. I have already spoken a bit about who Nefertiti was in the last episode, so I shall not go over this too much here. However, there are other things to note. During this scene, they start by fighting with knives and end up fighting with a spear and an axe. There is no evidence for such duels in ancient Egypt, though there was wrestling and combat sports such as archery, fights with short wooden sticks emulating swords and battle axes, and a kind of boat jousting where the crew of one boat would try to knock the crew of another boat into the water. A sport which I personally think sounds quite fun. However, as far as I'm aware, there are no depictions of women participating in these sports. On the other hand, this scene also includes a fair amount of gymnastics, and although this would not have been combined with fighting, or at least non-theatrical fighting anyway, 
This would often be performed by women. As for the weapons shown here, they are very similar to the weapons shown at the beginning of the film, set in 3067 BCE. I mean, I get that Egypt was an incredibly conservative culture, but even they changed quite a bit in the 1,700 odd years between King Scorpion II and Seti I. The axe here looks like it comes from the Middle Kingdom, but unlike in the film where it's made purely of metal, they typically had a wooden handle and often a bronze blade. In terms of the spear, unlike in the film where once again it's made purely of bronze, spears typically had a wooden pole attached to either a flint or bronze head. On the upside, the shape of the top of the spear is correct in this film, as the Egyptians typically had leaf-shaped heads to their spears. Overall, this second half of the film does not do a good job in terms of history. Its portrayals of places such as Karnak, the island of Philae, and Abu Simbel all have their issues, and many of the passing claims, such as Evie saying that the Blue Nile was part of Egypt, and Ardiff Bay talking about three-sided pyramids are inaccurate. However, in fairness, at least they are generally travelling in the correct direction, and passing monuments in the correct order. Further, although the duel between Evie and Anaxana Moon was not based on real activities in ancient Egypt, the axe that Evie is using is based on a real type of Egyptian axe, even if the materials the axe is made from are not entirely correct. Right, it is now time for the review section of this episode. So in this section, I shall simply talk about what I liked and disliked about the second half, and then rate the entire film out of 10. Firstly, I quite like the addition of Izzy, the dirigible pilot who takes our heroes to Amshur. I like his chemistry slash kind of rivalry with Jonathan, and I also enjoy that he traded in his plane for a dirigible. This just made the entire film seem a little quirkier, and I'm all for that. I also felt that Rick and Evie's son, Alex, has good chemistry with a lot of the cast members. In the first half, he bounces off Jonathan really well, and in the second half, it's fun watching him constantly annoy Loch Nahr, one of the main villains. You really get the sense that Loch Nahr had not gotten into the evil bodyguard business to babysit an annoying child. In a weird way, I felt quite sorry for Loch Nahr, in fact, because I wouldn't want to babysit Alex either. Just before they reach Amshur, as spoken about in the historical accuracy section, they have a flashback scene to ancient Egypt where we see a fight between Anaxanamun and Evie's former self, Nefertiti. Firstly, as already stated, the fact that Evie is the reincarnation of Nefertiti makes me roll my eyes so hard that they basically go all of the way round and face forward again. But admittedly, this scene was very entertaining and impressive. Further, the whole section set in ancient Egypt, although far from historically accurate, is well done as we see the events from the first film but from a different perspective. As mentioned a little in last episode, this adds lore to the franchise and helps to enhance the depth of the first film. Further, although the whole shrunken head section of Amshur is very silly, 
I enjoyed the way the atmosphere of the film completely changes when they arrive at the Oasis. In all honesty, I felt the film was just beginning to drag when this scene change came along. Further, I felt that Jonathan continues to be a really good character. Apparently, the writer wanted to show that Jonathan had learned nothing from the events of the first film, as he is still very much a comedy character. However, it is worth noting that not all of his traits are bad, and he has also retained the good ones. For instance, towards the end of the film, he saves Ardith Bay's life, and he also goes out of his way to not let his sister Evie down. This shows that although cowardly, he is well-meaning and can step up when needed. I feel that this is an element of Jonathan's character that many people overlook, and yet it is so vital to his likability. I will also say that the ending of this film could have potentially been a confusing mess, as there are multiple big battles going on at once. However, not only is it easy to follow, but everything going on at the end, whether it be Eevee fighting with an axe and a moon, the Magi battling the army of Anubis, or Imhotep and Rick fighting the Scorpion King, is all incredibly exciting and was a very satisfying end to the film. Now I shall move on to the parts of the film that I found unintentionally funny. To start with, when Alex is kidnapped by the villains, he makes fantastically perfect sandcastles of all of the places they are going. He does this in order to help Rick and Evie find him. Apparently, not only is Alex an intelligent child, but he also has the uncanny ability to make exact replicas of all of the sites in ancient Egypt with nothing more than a small amount of water and his bare hands. Truly an extraordinary child. The CGI for the Scorpion King is famously atrocious as mentioned earlier, and he looks about as real as Dwayne Johnson's tap dancing career. However, in a weird way, I wouldn't be without it because it has become synonymous with the film. In terms of the parts of this film that I outright did not like, they are few and far between. However, I do feel the film did begin to drag a little in the middle, which was something its predecessor managed to avoid. So, in terms of the reviews for this film, they were pretty average to be honest. On IMDb, it has a rating currently of 6.4 out of 10, and on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a score of 47%, with the general consensus being that the film was simply a CGI fest, with the characters only being secondary. I could not agree less with this statement. I very much love this film and view it as almost on par with its predecessor. I felt that the characters were top-notch and the story a lot of fun. Also, much like its predecessor, this film had a lot of charm. It is fair to say once again that I am incredibly biased when it comes to this film. As a child, I remember loving it so much that I even completed the objectively terrible PS2 game based on this film multiple times. However, it is fair to say that the film does have one or two flaws. Evie being the reincarnation of the daughter of Seti I, as mentioned in the first episode on this film, is occasionally used as an overly convenient plot point, and the film does drag a tiny bit in the middle. Therefore, I shall give this film a 9 out of 10. It is an excellent film, and in my opinion, a real classic, but its predecessor is a smidge better.
Thank you very much for listening. If you are enjoying these episodes and you have not already done so, why not consider subscribing? And join me on Thursday where we shall be looking into the Tales of the Dark Side movie, more specifically the Lot 249 segment, which is based on the Arthur Conan Doyle story of the same name. Then, join me again on Monday where we shall be diving into Legion of the Dead, a film produced by the Asylum Production Company, which came out in 2005. See you then, and I hope you have an excellent week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.